0: The first reading is taken from Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 19, and you can find it on page 886 of the few Bibles. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the Satraps, Prefects, Governors, and Royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The second reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 15 beginning at verse 18, and you can find this on page 1083 in your few Bibles. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it was, would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord.
2: a little bit of a catch-up of where we've got to in our studies on Daniel. You'll remember that Daniel and many, many others from um, God's land have been taken into exile by the Babylonians and are in Babylon, being trained up. These are the elite, the young men, who are actually going to help Babylon. They're going to be trained up to be able to work for the king, for the um, king Nebuchadnezzar. And um, so they're being trained for three years, living in the king's courts in a strange land in exile from all that they have known before. Last week we heard about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he was perturbed by his dream. He wanted to understand what the dream was saying and he was looking for people to interpret it for him. And none of the Babylonian astrologers were able to help him. And Daniel was brought forward. The biggest problem was that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't actually say what the dream was. So he was looking for someone to actually be able to know what he was dreaming and to interpret it as well. And Daniel was able to do that. And what Nebuchadnezzar was dreaming about was the, the kingdoms and the powers that were going to come. There were going to be more powers to come beyond him. And we're having a bit of a battle in Daniel between the earthly kingdoms, and God's kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is struggling to realize that the Lord, the God, his kingdom, is the one that lasts, is true, is eternal. He seemed to get it at the end of chapter 2. He seemed to be understanding because he was so amazed by what Daniel was able to do that he said, surely, Daniel's God is the true God. And we have to remember that at that time, the sense of one true God is still really, really unusual. There was a sense that each nation, each culture had their own God and it was fine for the God of Israel to be the God of his people, the Israelites. But now the king of Babylon is saying, surely this God is the God above my gods and is the God over all. Now that's really significant and really important that Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to realise this. But, as is so often the case, time moves on, possibly 16 years, uh, some commentators suggest, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And Nebuchadnezzar seems to have forgotten all about this idea of Yahweh, of the God of Israel being the God over all. And he decides at this stage that he wants to uh, see for himself how much support he's getting from his own people and from those of other nations who have been brought in. It's not just the Israelites who have come into Babylon. There are people from lots and lots of nations who have been brought in. There's such a strong force that they have conquered all these other countries, brought all these people in. It's multicultural, lots of languages going on. How loyal... Are these outsiders to him as king? That's what he wants to know. And he does it by building a statue. An enormous statue. And that's what the first part of chapter 3 is about. He makes an image of gold. If you want to find it, it's on page 886. It might help to have that open in front of you. An image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. I'm not very good at... um, visual sense of things until i actually see it but when i read the commentators they say this is quite unusual dimensions quite thin and very very tall Um, nine foot wide and 90 feet high an image of gold is built and the cost of building that the time to build that this is something incredible that is set up and once it's built nebuchadnezzar says now i've got it i want you to come and bow down before it There's going to be an opening ceremony, all these people are coming around, all these people from different nations, all the officials, all the fantastic names, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the other provincial officials have to come to the dedication of this image. And there's a huge orchestra, there's noise and when the trumpets blow, they all have to bow down to this image. Daniel doesn't appear in this chapter so we're not quite sure whether he's part of the crowd or not or whether he's managed to avoid having to come to this. He isn't written about. We're focusing on the three friends that came with him, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they're part of this crowd and they have a problem. They have a problem because they know it is forbidden to bow down before an idol. It is forbidden in Jewish law to worship an idol, to worship anything that is not God. And so they have this dilemma as to what to do. And when the trumpets blow, they do not bow down. Now, it doesn't seem as if they make a big song and a dance about it. They're not demonstrating with placards saying, you know, this is against the law, we're not doing this. It doesn't say that. But somehow they're spotted. So whether they're just very quietly trying to hide in a corner. But the astrologers, some of them notice and see that they are not bowing down before the statue. And they go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, These men, they've forbidden you, O great and mighty king. They have not done as you have commanded. They have not bowed down before this idol. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And he calls them in. And he says, there is a punishment. And the punishment is to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And he asks them, will you bow down or will you be thrown into the fiery furnace? And they say that if we're thrown, this is in verse 17, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O oh king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're not going to do it. They trust in a God who can save them. But even if he doesn't save them, they will still not bow down before the statue, knowing what will happen to them. And of course, that is what happens. They're thrown into the blazing furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is so furious, he turns it up seven times hotter than normal. So much so that the soldiers who are stoking up this furnace, they die. The intensity of the heat, they're not even in it. They're standing outside. And it is so hot that they die. That is how hot it is. And the three friends are thrown in to the fiery furnace. And at some point, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, I think there are only three were thrown into there and yet i see four the son of god seems to be there a son of god an angel we're not quite sure but there is somebody in there whether it's some sense of jesus being with them we don't know but a messenger from god is in that fiery furnace with the three men and they do not burn the ropes burn but they do not burn And Nebuchadnezzar realises that this is a miracle that can only come from God. And again, he says at the end, verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, defied the king's command. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that anyone who says anything against this god be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can serve in this way. So yet again, Nebuchadnezzar is realizing something about Yahweh, the true God. It's quite a story, isn't it? It's quite phenomenal, and it's it's amazing it's one that we read children. I just hope they're fine. Rakshak and Benny's all right. But actually, there's something dramatic about it. There's something miraculous, something amazing. But it raises lots of questions as well. If we keep it at the children's story, we think yes, these three men did as they were told, thrown into the fire, and they didn't burn, and they all lived happily ever after. But let's probe a little bit deeper than that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are living in Babylon. They've been there quite a long time. There's that sense in which they are acclimatizing and assimilating to the culture there. They've already had to think about what do they do and what do they not do. So they haven't eaten the king's food and they have eaten vegetables instead. That was in chapter one. Here's the next dilemma for them. The king is asking them to do something that is against their law. Bowing to the idol is strictly forbidden. And so it's a step too far for them, and it's time to make a stand. That's fairly obvious as we look back with our eyes, seeing the choice that they made and what happened. But imagine you were Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. And you know what the king is asking. And you know the threat of death if you don't do it. You might have a different thought process. You might immediately say, No, I'm not going to do it. But chances are we go through a bit of a thought process to get to that. We might say, I'll bow, but I'm not going to mean it. I'll have my fingers crossed behind my back. I'll look as if I'm doing it, but I'm not really doing it. But that way, I'm going to be safe. They might be thinking, is this really what God wants for us? Does he want his people to die? Surely God wouldn't want that to happen. And you begin to come up with a theory as to why it might be okay. They're in an unusual situation. They've been taken out of their land where they can obey the rules because that's the country is set up by that. And they're somewhere else. Do the rules still count when you're not in Israel. That would be a thought process that they may have gone through. The third one might be, surely God wouldn't want them to risk their lives. Surely God loves them. That's something they have learned through their history, that God loves them. Surely he wouldn't want them to risk their lives. So there could have been a lot of thought process and a lot of turmoil. I don't think there was an easy decision that they reached. So imagine the turmoil that they might have gone through. They might have thought, this is what we're going to do, and then realized, no, we can't do that. So easy to say, I'll just do it anyway, but not really mean it. God won't mind. The pressure to conform would have been immense. Some psychological studies took place, I think it was in the 50s, and the ASH experiments were showing how people conform. They took some people into a um, a laboratory situation. So there was a room. And ostensibly, there were 15 volunteers all being asked to do the same exercise. One person was actually the, the one who was being tested. And the other 14 were in on the experiment. But the one person didn't know this. So the 15 people were shown a line. And then shown a picture with three different lengths of line. And asked which is the same measurement. So they'd look at them and say, This line, which, which does it match on this picture of three? And they'd go around, and the, the 15th person was the one who didn't realise that he was actually the, the dummy proving the experiment. So, first time, one, two, three, four, five, six, up to 14 all agreed on the correct line, and number 15 said, Yes, that's the right one. Did that for three or four times. By round number five, Numbers 1 to 14 identified the wrong line as correct. And number 15 agreed with them. And again, and again, and again. In that sense, even if you think something is right in your head, the pressure to conform is immense. And so actually, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were working against what they would naturally be wanting to do everything within them would be saying we're going to conform this is okay this is right but they take their stand and they say no this is a step too far they know that god can save and if they left it there that would be okay they would say it's it's actually it's all right we can go into the fiery furnace because we know the outcome but they don't know the outcome and so they say, we know that God can save us, but even if he doesn't, this is the right thing to do. And the miracle happens. And with hindsight, we can see that. But as they stood at the edge of the fiery furnace, they don't know the outcome. But even if God doesn't save them, this is the right thing to do. Now, this is quite an impact on Nebuchadnezzar. The first thing, he realizes that their stand has a strength. He notices the integrity by which they are living. He sees what they have done and is amazed by it. He almost becomes more angry by it. He can't believe that they won't bow down. Why are these men taking this stand? Why won't they just do as they're told? There is something within them that he realizes that they're living with an integrity. And to begin with, he doesn't quite know how to deal with that. But their stand is noticed. I wonder if we realise that when we take a stand about something, people notice. We're often not thinking about the impact on other people. We're struggling in our own minds as to what is the right thing to do. It might be a work situation. It might be a family situation. What is the right thing to do? But when we live with integrity... When we live in such a way that our faith is real in our life and our life reflects that, other people notice. They might not know what to do with it to begin with, but it has an impact. And people can see that we are living according to our faith. And that is powerful. The second effect on Nebuchadnezzar is that he praises God. He's reminded again of who God is. And so by taking a stand, they are witnessing to God. Again, do we think this? That when we live with integrity, when we live in the way that isn't always the easy way to live, we're actually witnessing to who God is. We might never know what happens to other people. We might never know the impact it has But it might be at some point in the future, somebody will realize, well, I knew so-and-so. They were faithful to God. They knew Jesus. And it showed in the way they lived their lives. We witness to God when we take a stand. And then thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar is able to see the power of God's kingdom. He's an empire builder. All he's interested in is power, and the power of his earthly kingdom. And yet he's able to stand and say, your God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, has a kingdom that is more powerful than any that I know. He looks upwards and is able to see something beyond the earthly kingdoms. And we know through history the desire of people to build Strong, earthly kingdoms, and yet they are nothing compared to God's kingdom. Only God's kingdom is eternal, and only God's values are eternal values. I wonder if we think about that as we're contemplating how we're voting on Thursday. God's kingdom is the kingdom that matters. We are part of living here, and it's really important to vote but as we consider prayerfully how to vote, are we thinking about God's kingdom, God's values? Because they are the ones that are of worth and should somehow influence our thinking as we make decisions about rulers here on earth. So which kingdom are we investing in? In our own lives, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego took a stand to invest in God's kingdom? What about us? How are we witnessing to the eternal values of God's kingdom? Where do we need to make a stand? Where is compromise a step too far? Where are we saying that some of these other values that surround us, materialism, power, where are we saying actually there is something greater than those and we will invest in what has earth eternal value. And we won't be compromised because we know God, we know Jesus, and we want to go his way. Will we trust in God's promises? Because that's the really scary bit, isn't it? If actually going God's way threatens our lives, will we still do that? Unfortunately, in this country, we don't face life-threatening situations. But there are many around the world today who do. To even say, I am a Christian, is a danger. Andrew White in Iraq has been writing out about the horrors in northern Iraq of Christians who are being beheaded because they are saying that they are Christians. We don't face that here. But our brothers and sisters in northern Iraq are facing that very real situation because we know also, as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did, that God can save, but he doesn't always. And that's terrifying, isn't it? That's really t- terrifying. We make a stand not knowing if this is one of the situations where God will save or not. When I go and visit our son in Oxford, there's a statue to some martyrs. I'm going to get their names wrong, but I think it's Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer. But post Reformation, men who took a stand because they wanted and believed that the Bible should be in English for every person to be able to read and understand it. We would laud and say, isn't that fantastic? But at the time, that wasn't liked. And they were burned at the stake. God didn't put the fire out, He didn't stop them burning, even though the flames were there. They died. God doesn't always save. So when we take that stand, we trust in a God who can save, but who doesn't always. Will we still take our stand? So ultimately, will we live as citizens of God's kingdom? Or are we going to be swayed by the dangers and the threats around us? Jesus himself walked this path. Jesus himself reached the point of the garden of Gethsemane, where he knelt before his father and said, if it is your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. But not my will, but yours. Do we live as Jesus did, saying, God, your will in my life, not mine. Your will to be the oddball in the workplace who actually says, no, I'm not going to cheat on my expenses. The person in the playground who will actually say, yes, I do go to church, even though others might be sneering or laughing. Where do we need to take our stand as a sign of being citizens of God's kingdom, following the way that Jesus did? It isn't always easy, but when we do, we're investing in a kingdom that lasts eternally. Amen.